the joy of waiting together. The joy of waiting together this Advent season. A beautiful gift from God, not binding as Scripture, but a helpful tool to slow down and appreciate God's kindness and faithfulness. We know that God never wastes a hurt. No, that's a reality. He's good and faithful and He's always working, but it's a time like Advent that reminds us that God never also wastes a waiting. God never wastes a wait. All of our hearts at different seasons can be discontent, looking for something that is in the future to come. And in our looking, our hearts can become resentful, can become embittered that things either may not turn out the way we hope that they are or reach the timing of which we think they ought to come. But our text this morning is a reminder that just as God who is faithful in suffering, He's faithful in seasons of waiting. Advent, the slowing down of reminder of God's faithfulness and promise in the person of Christ. True love, true hope, true joy, true peace that we have in Him as those who turn and, and abide in Him and trust Jesus Christ. God never wastes a wait And so there's joy as believers as we wait for the Lord's coming again as we aim to abide in Christ, believers and dwelt by the Holy Spirit to say what a joy that we can wait together. And in our waiting, not in isolation, but in a waiting of faithfulness, abiding in Christ, proclaiming His glory, making disciples for the glory of God until He should call us home or come again for us. So as we look at our text this morning, we're reminded of this very central idea that God loves His bride. He loves His bride so much that He will not allow our faithful suffering to become about us. The suffering that believers endure is not about us, but He uses these things for the good of the bride, the good of the body, the good of the believers. He uses these things for our good in ways that we could never imagine or would orchestrate on our own doing. So as we look at our text this morning, we're going to note together three ways in which the Lord uses waiting and He uses hardship and heartache and suffering in His bride to benefit us and bless us in beautiful, beautiful ways. So let's look first, as we note in verse 7, that He brings our wills to heaven persistent in prayer. It is through the suffering that the bride endures, the beloved of God, those who have repented and placed their faith and trust in, in Jesus Christ. And you this morning, if you don't know Jesus as the Savior of your life, as the one who has forgiven you, if you don't come to God with confidence through Jesus Christ, make today the day that you confess your sins and, and place your faith in Jesus who lived a sinless life and died on the cross for us, defeated death, buried and resurrected, ministered and ascended and he will come again one day in glory and so we gather together not as people perfect on our own means or pure in our own means or people who conjure up joy or hope or peace within our hearts but we are recipients of these things because we have Christ our hope is in Christ and his finished work and so we have these things we have true joy we have true peace we have true hope and we know the love of God found in Christ so we'd invite you to come and and know him today that you might see this truth, that He brings our wills to heaven persistent in prayer through suffering. Look again back at verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. 
The reality of the judgment of God, the reality of the finality of suffering, leads to this charge. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Look up a few verses into chapter 3, verse 7, if you have your Bibles. Look at chapter 3, verse 7. We'll go back and look at several different verses we've seen in 1 Peter. Because at this point in the letter, Peter is reliving many of the threads. He's already sown the threads, many of them from the first few verses, and now he's pulling them through the rest of the book to drive it home in real life applications for the body here who's suffering, experiencing mocking and slander because of their allegiance to Jesus as the king of their lives. And so look at chapter 3, verse 7. Who is it here in this verse that, that Peter gives instruction to in this word of God? Who does Peter give instruction to and orders them that they ought to live in a certain way so that the Lord will honor their prayers. And if they don't live in this certain way, this sober-mindedness, this self-controlled way toward this other person, it will indeed inhibit their prayers. Who is it? It's the husbands. Do you remember that? 1 Peter 3, verse 7, he said, Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. What's that look like? It means showing honor to the woman as a weaker vessel. That's to be mindful of God, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. Why? So that your prayers may not be hindered. Here's what will happen, I should say, if you do not honor, if you do not live in such a way, your prayers will be hindered. Well, here now, in chapter 4, verse 7, we see the similar idea for all believers, not simply for husbands, but for men and women and boys and girls in the Lord. That a sober-mindedness, a self-controlled life, it makes our prayers very much what we see in the book of James. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. As believers going through suffering, we have the opportunity to intercede for the bride. The priesthood of believers to go and to seek the Lord. And as we hear of burdens and anxieties on the beloved's life, the responsibility to go quickly to the Lord in prayer for them. It's through heartache, most often, isn't it, that the Lord burdens us to seek Him in prayer. It may look like receiving a text message or a phone call or you hear something that breaks your heart for the global church and suffering, but also for the local church. As loved ones are maybe going through difficult marriages or just incredible hardship or heartache in their home with grandkids that are running far from the Lord or sickness that's befallen them and and you're burdened because you love this person, you're burdened to go to the Lord in prayer. But how sad is it When somebody asks us to pray and we know that we've been avoiding the Lord. You know what I'm saying? We we have peace with God, but we are choosing to live in the opposite of these things. We're we're choosing not to live self-controlled. We're choosing not to live sober-minded. And somebody comes and asks us for prayer. Imagine this scenario. Tomorrow evening, somebody calls you and says, listen, will you please pray for me in this? They confide in you and ask you to join them in prayer. And what do you say? If that call finds you in a season of habitual sin and and, and allegiance to idolatry in the flesh and things we know we ought to be repentant of, and they, they call you and ask you to seek the Lord on their behalf with them. It's this awkward moment. Now we know that the Lord is not angry with us. We know in the sense very much of, you think of a child who the parent... And maybe the child's done something wrong and they're, they don't want to go sit before their parent 
and authority. Even though we know the Lord loves His children and He calls us and He's joyed at our repentance, our turning and abiding in Him. He, that brings the Lord joy. But that anxiety of what sin does in our hearts when we don't live self-controlled or sober-minded lives, it, it inhibits our prayers. It slows us down. It gets us stuck in the mud. We begin to turn God into someone that He's not. Very much like we see in the garden with Adam and Eve's gullibility and decision to believe the serpent rather than the Lord's Word Himself. Sin causes us to distort our view of God and it distorts our hunger and our wills in seeking the Lord's guidance. The Lord of hosts. But, imagine you get that message tomorrow. Heaven forbid, but you receive that message of burden from a loved one, a, a, a fellow believer. And they ask you to pray and you remember that this morning, this morning, you repented in the context of the service. You confessed your sins to the Lord who is faithful and just to cleanse you of your sins and forgive you of all unrighteousness. That you have peace with God and, and you know you're, you're right with the Lord. You're abiding in Him and that you've, you're, you're self-controlled in the Lord. The Spirit has convicted you and you're afresh this morning from leaving. And so for 24 hours or so, now, now how do you view that call with joy and eagerness, you take up praying for them. Like a child now in this sense that doesn't want to go to bed. And so they draw out the story at night. You know what I'm talking about? They're eager to spend time talking with the Lord on your behalf. That's the joy that we have this morning as we gather together. We hear the Word. We sing together as a body. We stoke each other to love and good deeds because the Lord may have prayers of intercession and ministry to do throughout our very weeks. It's a reminder of the joy that we have as the Beloved in abiding in Christ, confessing sin and resting in His finished work. Isn't that a good thing? The Lord does these things when we're burdened in sin. He uses suffering often to drive us most passionately and intently and consistently to prayer. That our wills would begin to look out of this world, stuck in the daily routines and the muck of life. Our hearts and our wills and our perspectives are refreshed with a heavenly lens. And the joy then that that brings to our same normal daily lives of chores. We'll never get out of chores, and that's okay. But to do chores with joy because of our contentment in Christ is a great thing. What does the Lord do with our hearts? 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. Look back there. I told you we'd be going back to 1 Peter in several spots. In 1 Peter 3.15, the beloved is living in such a way that the watching world, authorities above them and peers around them, are looking at how they live their lives under Christ's authority. A higher authority than even the emperor. They're setting apart Christ's Lord as holy in their lives, meaning they're in awe of the Lord and how they live. And look what happens here. Pastor John did a great job covering this for us in verse 315. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do this with gentleness and respect. So we note then, as we come to chapter 4, verse 7, that when we set apart Christ as Lord is holy. When we live in awe of God, it's not only that the Lord uses an evangelistic purpose in our lifestyles, but the Lord uses a loving, ministering purpose 
in our lifestyles because it draws us quicker and more effectively in prayer. It gives us a greater joy in interceding for the loved ones. So when we set apart the Christ, the Lord is holy in our lives and we live in awe of God, self-controlled, sober-minded, as he says here. Not only does it cause the watching unbelievers to take note of our distinct lives in the language that we use, but it causes us to be more effective ministers to the life of the body of which we are a holy priesthood ministering to each other the goodness of God. Now, a few weeks ago, Megan Powell referenced in a recent women's Bible study lesson. I'm not a member of women's Bible study. I know that's shocking for you. But those lessons are recorded, and they're on YouTube, and I think on your channel, Kim. And they're wonderful to watch. They're great teachings taking place. And one of those lessons, and I'd encourage you in this as well, at the end of every service, just want to give a plug of this. There's ministry leaders here to counsel with you or to, to give you prayer, help you in your next steps, to pray with you. If you're a, a lady and you've not met our women's director, Kim, Kim, would you raise your hand up here? Very good. Now you know what her hand looks like. So uh, <laughs> she'll be up here at the end of the service. If you don't know her, that's a great next step to take, to get connected into the life of our body. But listen to this, this lesson that, that Megan gave. She did a wonderful job exposing this text in the book of Acts. And she referenced a letter written by Kayla Mueller. Caleb was taken captive August 4th, 2013 at the age of 24 by ISIS. She was serving with the Spanish doctors without Borders Hospital in Aleppo, Syria. She was taken captive. And a letter was ultimately able before her death to be given to her family. And in that, as Megan quoted, she says in this letter, God and the prayers of her loved ones, that they, they, they sustained her. And she says, to her loved ones, I have felt tenderly cradled in free fall. And listen to what she goes on to say. I pray each day that if nothing else, you have felt a certain closeness and surrender to God as well. The thought of your pain in the source of my own is the source of my own. Simultaneously, the hope of our reunion is the source of my strength. Please be patient. Give your pain to God. I know you would want me to remain strong. That is exactly what I'm doing. Do not fear for me. Continue to pray as will I. By God's will, we will be together soon. All my everything. Kayla. Now God loves His bride so much that He would permit Kayla to give her life. God loves His bride so much that He allows us to wait. God loves His bride so much that He uses her suffering to bring the rest of His bride's heart and prayers and thoughts to heaven on our behalf. Isn't that good? Isn't God a faithful and good God? We see also that He brings not only our wills up to heaven, but He brings our affections for one another, caring for Christ's bride. He lifts our wills to heaven. And He grows our love for one another as local believers. The global bride of Christ, of which we can't imagine their faces. There's so many and they're all over and we've not met them, but we love them and we're, bond, we're bound together with them. So if after church you were to meet a, a believer from a totally different place, you would be bonded together with them. But our affections in the context of the local church grows personal. For you know their faces, you know their testimonies. You know their burdens. You know their stresses. 
You know their sufferings. You know the hardship that they're experiencing because of their allegiance to Jesus. You know how the Spirit of God is working in them and sanctifying them. He says in verse 8, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. And then the charge to show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Now God does a work in the life of a believer and they're in the life of the entire congregation when sacrificial love is demonstrated. We have a number of students that graduated. A few students graduated and have left Nacogdoches. They'll return in seven years because they'll never get away. This is where God wants them, right? Right here in Nacogdoches with us. That was a subliminal plug for you college students that are still here. You can't get away. You're coming back, all right? But we'll never graduate from the charge to show love is the first priority for the beloved. We'll never retire from the emphasis and the importance of, above all, Peter says, be earnest in love for one another. The love the believer has isn't simply some kind of squishy love. It's a love rooted in truth. It's a a love rooted in a historical reality of the the coming of the Son who took on flesh and dwelt among us. It's rooted in the historical reality of His sinless life and His glorious atoning death upon the cross and His resurrection. It's rooted in reality. But it's this love then, the love that we know in Christ that binds us together It fuels us to mission and the commission that the Lord has given us. And it builds and binds our love together. Above all, he says, keep loving one another. Look back to chapter 1, verse 22 and 23. He said this already. Again, we're just picking up on the rope, the threads that he started for us earlier in chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 22 and 23. Earnest love. He says, having purified your souls by the obedience to the truth, a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of God. It's the same idea we have in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. The pure in heart, they shall see God. As we love one another as believers, Anytime people are together in any proximity, whether it's a marriage, a family relationship, or just literally your neighbors, you take people who are impacted by sin and commit sin, and you put them together, and you give them time, what's going to probably happen? There's going to be a fence that's going to take place, right? There's going to be a fence. And if as believers, those who have clear understanding of the Gospel, the good news message, if, if to love one another, if the reality of the transformative love we know in Christ isn't central in how we interact with one another, if we're not saying this above all, this of first importance, isn't guiding our minds, self-controlled, sober-minded, in how we interact with one another, what will happen to our hearts? What's he say as he goes on in these verses in 1 Peter chapter 4? We will find ourselves doing what? Verse 9. Show hospitality one another without, what's that word? Grumbling. Now I know nobody in this room, none of us have ever had a problem with grumbling, correct? We've never grumbled against one another. We've never grumbled against the Lord. 
Of course we have. So what is it to prioritize love for one another that demonstrates itself in hospitality? Uh, We love because the Lord first loved us. The great God initiated these things. He first loved us. He's the one that sent the Son while we were yet enemies of God. And this hospitality that we've received in the working of Christ is to make its way out of our daily lives and our words and how we interact with each other in a reality that we will stumble against each other. But as we're showing hospitality, a a sacrificialness, a joyfulness with our time, our talents, and our treasures, we leave very little room for grumbling because we're active in serving and meeting each other's needs and partnering together to make disciples for the glory of God. We're busy doing the work of the ministry. In Proverbs chapter 10, verse 12, we have this, I think, very intentional. Most scholars would reference that as well. Proverbs 10, 12, listen to this. It says, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. Believers are charged with only the second part of that. He doesn't charge the church or make it descriptive of the bride of Christ to be stirring up strife. But what's the default? If we're not active in making sure above all, the second part of the proverb, love covers all offenses, what will happen in even a believer's life? Strife and hatred and grumbling will root up. And it will cause divisions like relational arsonists. Grumbling will take in. The enemy, Ephesians 4, will receive a foothold as the forgiveness of Christ isn't working its way out through our actual relationships. Grace marked people. And the Lord uses suffering in our lives. Why is this important? It's because so in, in the first century world, when we think of many of these churches met in houses, they, they could build buildings like this and how we can today. But you may think, well, a house meant that they had a dozen people that met together. We know archaeologically that just as the church, even though there are many poor, many meek people, there are also people of means always in the church. Even we see in, uh, that, that a number of Caesar's own household came to Christ. They had large houses. Archaeologically, we know there were churches that met and people's houses that hosted them that could hold hundreds of people in their home. That's a big house church, right? A big house. I want you to imagine that you're the host. And maybe the service doesn't look like an hour or hour or, you know, 70 minutes together, but, but it's, it's all evening or early, early in the morning. We know historically some churches would meet early before the sun would ever come up so that those that had to work could come on Sunday morning and they could, they could do service. So, so next week we're going to start a 5 a.m. service. It's going to be great. But they would do this. And imagine you're the host. Imagine how this would inconvenience your time. How this could impact your treasure as you found needs in the body and you gave. And we have a benevolent need. And if you have a member of this body have needs at Grace, we want to be able to come alongside you and help you any way that we can. But, but when we begin to, to host, what can happen? We, our hearts can begin to grumble against each other. If we look at these situations as contracts, I do this, you do that, instead of showing love for one another out of the overflow of the grace that we've experienced in Christ. This is what we've experienced, and we see this in our small groups. 
This is why it's so important to have a word worship service family. Be a part of a group at Grace where you're devoted to the word together. Be involved in a small group as those will be getting started up soon. Sign up if you're a man and you're not in a huddle group. Get involved with the huddle group. and You'll be contacted by your leaders if you haven't already done so. You'll get contacted this week. If you're a lady, get involved in our women's ministry as that's firing back up here in January. Get involved. Devote yourself to the word with a group. And our small group that we're a part of on Sunday nights has meant the world to us. It's been great. I don't lead it. I'm just like a giant bearded fly on the wall. It's great. I don't even teach it. I host it. Justin and uh, Jeff do a great job leading our groups. But what makes our group special is, is it's a multi-generational group. And, and Keith Hubbard, our small groups director, would tell you this. Most groups that will just start cold turkey, just we put people in a room, those groups may not survive or it will take a couple semesters to build chemistry. But by now, this is our fourth, I think, semester together. Uh, it is a beautiful group. It's a multi-generational group. We have groups that are people in our group that are just outside of college. We have groups that are people in our group that are retired, people that are married, people that are single. It's a sweet group together. But how did that happen? Anybody in our group would tell you the first semester we were together, it was kind of awkward. It was kind of manufactured because you can't easy bake fellowship, can you? You can't do it. It's going to take a while. But you lean into it, and we're centrally devoted to the Word together, so the Word is what binds us together, so we're not going to flake out on each other yet. Let's stay in the Word. And, but you know what changed our group as I was thinking about this? Around the, right around the second semester, toward the end of the second semester, our group, the chemistry started to, to happen in a great way where we really started to feel like family. You know what it was? It was people in our group that started to suffer. And perhaps I should say it this way, people in our group began to be very honest about their sufferings. People in our group began to be honest about just struggles in their marriage. People in our group began to be honest about struggles with family members. And people at this point, we had built up enough trust together uh, to, to, to be when they would, somebody would lose a loved one, we were just swarmed in with food and care. And when people would welcome new life into their, somebody would have a baby and then they'd be swarmed just with love and care. What do you need? It was, it was the heartache and the sacrificial service components that bound us together. It, that's the hospitality of life. That's what makes the local church special. As we're the people of God, a disciple-making people, proclaiming the glories of God to the end of our days and the end of the earth. That's good news. If we didn't have suffering or we withheld the experience of our heartache from each other, we could never be bound together because we wouldn't actually be showing above all loving one another. We, would, we couldn't show hospitality to each other because everybody's perfect. We don't need any help. But when we're honest with our struggles, the Lord works in a great way. Hospitality above all of these things as stewards, not as owners. Finally, how does this demonstrate itself through the ministry of the church. We've spoken about how suffering brings our wills to heaven on behalf of one another. We've spoken about how suffering binds us together so that we can actually begin to say, I, I know you well enough that I begin to weep when you weep. That when you hurt, I hurt. We begin to be bound together in this way. It builds our affections for one another as believers. Suffering does. And waiting does. But so too, God has equipped us. He's given the body these gifts as we look at verse 10 and 11. He loves us so much that He gives us gifts to use that will help preserve the bride through the little while, which glorifies God forever and ever. 
The body who is interceding for one another in prayer. The body who's growing in love and hospitality for one another. Pouring their lives out together. As, as Jerry Alexander, our elder, said at the very beginning, the, the, uh, quoting Paul, that you share your very lives together. That looks like very practically as believers, the Spirit has gifted each believer in many in a multitude of ways, but He's given us at least one gift to be able for the purpose of building up the body of Christ. Demonstrated and exercised with that same charge. Above all, love. Love and humility mark the demonstration and the exercising of the spirit gifts that we've received. He says in verse 10, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. And he breaks them down in these ways. Whoever speaks, this is just the, the, the whole large two categories. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves, so there's a, there's a component of understanding God's Word and will for our life, and then serves, the ability to demonstrate this reality, showing this reality. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. And this eternal charge is given to Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now, from 1 Peter, I'll just be honest with you. I'm not going to ask you if you've taken a spiritual gifts test. I remember when I was in high school, I would, love, I would take them repeatedly to see if I got like a different answer like the next month. Uh, our, our youth pastor gave them out, and I think I stole. That's probably not a good thing. Uh, I shouldn't admit that to you. But I took a lot of them. And I'd be like, I wonder what my spiritual gift is now. It's crazy. Sometimes they come up different. Incredible, depending on what, how good my dinner was that night. And they can serve a purpose. But Peter doesn't charge the church in these two general categories of, of, of speaking gifts and of serving gifts. He doesn't say take a test in this way. What's the context by which the body of Christ recognizes the gifts and how the Holy Spirit has given them to them? Hospitality. It's the local church being together. Spending time, talents, and treasures together as stewards. And what's it look like and how we begin to recognize these things? We begin to recognize and are built up by the exercising of those gifts by other believers. Whether it's teaching gifts or serving gifts. A great example of this. If you haven't had a chance to listen to the November 18th midweek podcast with Susan King, I, I encourage you, go back and listen to it. Download it online, the, the church app we have. You can find it. It's pretty easy. November 18th, Susan King. Don't start listening to it right now, but you can go do that. Here's why you should do so. Now, just so you know, when, when, when Stephen is so good at administrating these things, and, but we don't really have much pre-conversation with anybody. We said, the goal of these is to, to, that you could hear members' testimonies and that it would spark you say oh i didn't know i had this in common with this person or praise god that he's worked in this way in that person or that couple's lives and that our affections would grow for one another and we'd glorify god to see how god's working in that person's life that you may not have time to be able to speak to or pursue on a sunday morning but in the podcast so we don't give much warning we just start we just dive right in and as we're talking with susan she's sharing about from when she first came to grace bible and she we realize she's served in the Crosspoint ministry, and she's served in Connect ministry. She's served like everywhere imaginable. And, and that's stunning because here's a single woman, a faithful woman, 
And she has served in so many different places. And we asked her the question, I asked her the question, well, how? Like, why have you served in all these different places? And she gives this ho-hum response like, that's just what you do. Of course. Like it was the worst question she'd ever been asked. But why did she respond that way? Because the Holy Spirit has gifted her with this gift of service. And so the hand looks at everything and says, well, that's just what you do. You pick things up. This is how you, this is what you do. But that's this woman of God who's blessed our congregation by using her spiritual gift by being a steward. And she looks at her life and says, well, I've got a lot of time because I'm, I, I'm a single woman. But most people who may be in a similar situation of life who are single might say, well, I've got all the time in the world to travel and to do what I want to do. You see, it's hospitality and being together with the body. It's knowing each other well enough to share our burdens and, and our sins and confess our sins together and pray for each other. It's enough to suffer and hurt with each other. That builds our affections. And then it's the coming in and meeting of those needs. I love the quote that everybody has a spiritual gift of picking up chairs. We all do. And what can be a danger in our life is we can look at our gift and say, well, this is just my gift. I'm just going to sit on deck and wait till I see an opportunity to use my special gift. That sounds a lot like what was going on in Corinth. But the body who's bonded together in love, that more time and more ink ought to be spilled on the reality of pouring our lives out together and asking, how can I bless that person and these people? How can I join them in making disciples of the glory of God? And if there's not a ministry already set up in the context of our body, we want to help develop one to do so. But it happens in a context of spending our lives together, loving each other. Isn't God's Word good? Because momentary suffering can go forward to bring God glory much longer than our death date on this earth. What, what does He say there? To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. That's our calling in life. We are a people marked because the coming of Jesus, true hope, true peace, true joy, and true love. We are the people marked by these components. Not because we're special, but because the glory and goodness of God and what we have received in Christ is special. Because the world is filled with counterfeit hopes. It's filled with counterfeit peace. It's filled with counterfeit joys. Fake it till you make it mentality. It's filled with defunct loves. But beloved, we have this in Christ. So in Advent, we slow down. And we take joy in the waiting together. Amen? What a privilege to wait together. In our next steps, there's three specific questions. Of course, these next steps are always additions to whatever the Holy Spirit has already placed upon your heart and your mind from the context of the passage in the morning together. But three particular targets that I can put up for you if the Spirit hasn't already given one for you. Consider these. Have other believers ever affirmed any Spirit-given gifts in your life? And here's what I would ask you to consider praying and, and asking the Lord with. Would you ask God to show you titled but also untitled opportunities to serve your church family and the context of your community? There's titled ministry components. So if you look at our bulletin on any week, you'll see it's arranged very intentionally. Word, worship, service, family. You'll see all the contact information for our ministry directors in your bulletin. You can contact them and say, hey, I'd like to know more. I'd like to find out maybe a way that, that I could get involved or 
or help in any kind of way I, that I can. Maybe it's leadership. Maybe it's who knows what it is. But that service component isn't limited to that area. So there's ministry that's a titled ministry and ministry that is untitled ministry. It's the very intentionality of saying, I'm, I'm called and I'm going to choose to share my life with these people. That means I'm going to get to know them. It doesn't take a title to call someone or text them or email them or bump into them and say, hey, would you ever want to get lunch together sometime? I know COVID brings some weird qualifications with this and what that may look like. But it leads us into our second component. Don't waste your waiting. Don't waste your waiting. Here's the reality. When we don't confess our hurts to God. We don't spend that anger or that uncomfortableness proactively in dealing with what could be restlessness in our hearts. It will lead itself to resentment or bitterness. So as you think about waiting, is there restlessness in your heart that perhaps has led you to bitterness, not so much against the people of God, but against the Lord Himself? And my question to you is, would you take time even this morning as we sing this song of response in a few moments to just do business with the Lord? Confess it to Him. And rest in the peace and hope that you have in Christ. The joy of Christ in coming to Jesus. A beautiful reality, amen? That leads us to our third component. Take time today to pray and assemble a plan to practice hospitality through December. Hospitality means very simply, you've been marked by the grace and kindness of God. How can you show it to others? It means being willing to, to, to be the host of wherever you're at. Take a host mentality of wherever you're at. Say, this is where God has me, and I am at peace to be here, and I'm going to demonstrate hospitality. Would you talk to God and ask for His guidance? Lord, how can I show, how can we show, how can our home show hospitality through the month of December as we experience this season of waiting? Amen? Well, there could not be a more appropriate selection to turn our hearts to seeing His grace. Would you stand with me as we respond in song to the Lord after the service? We'll be here for prayer or any way we can help you with your next step.